When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Maria Romanenko is a journalist and campaigner who fled Ukraine and moved to the UK last year at the start of the war. She's talked about her experience for publications including The Guardian, Time magazine and the BBC. Today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, Maria, it is a total pleasure and an honour to talk to you. And I suppose we'll start with, like, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Yes, uh, of course. So my name is Maria Romanenko and I'm a journalist from Kiev, Ukraine, where I lived most of my life. Uh, I did go to university in the UK. I went to the University of Leeds and I did my A-levels in Oxfordshire. But, you know, after graduating in 2014, I went back to Ukraine and I lived there very happily for eight years. And then obviously the all-out war started on February 24th. My partner, who's from Manchester, born and bred here, He uh, was with me in just outside of Kiev, February 24th, and he woke me up to the news of the bombings uh, all around Ukraine and basically said that he's going to flee. So I, after some thinking and um, decision time, I decided to uh, follow him. And that brought me here into the UK. And I've been here for, well, it'll be six months soon, since March the 2nd. And... um, really sort of looking forward to going back to Ukraine but for now I'm just very grateful to be here and I've made some very good friends. I mean it must be an enormous decision to make to I mean even in you know what seems like obvious circumstances the the idea of leaving a country when there is war and bombs and uh, fear uh, as you say it must be still like to make that decision to go. Are your family still in Kiev? Uh, most of them. Well, my mum is living with us in the house. And uh, the rest of them, my dad, my brother, my 92-year-old grandmother, who I hope to speak about <laughs> during this podcast, um, they back there, and so is my like cousins and um, auntie, uncle, and, yeah, a lot of my family, basically everybody apart from my mum. 
Mums are the best, I would say that, as I am a mum. So I think mums are the best ones. So the podcast is all about writing letters. Now, I often say that people who are under the age of 35 do not have much experience of writing letters, and you are definitely under the age of 35. So uh, are you much of a letter writer? Were you much of a letter writer? When you were at Leeds University, presumably you wrote letters to your family, or did you just write emails? Uh, no, I did, no, I didn't actually write letters to my family um, when I was at university. I did sometimes like send postcards. I still do, you know, when you just like visit um, some nice place and you want to send a postcard to somebody. Uh, but I did. I definitely do remember the letter writing sort of era because that's when I was um, a child. You know, I think maybe emails didn't exist, and if they did exist, not on this such a wide level. So, so I wrote letters to my friends um, and my grandparents, and I even had like a pen friend at one um, at one point. So I do remember that. But saying that, I I have one person in my life who does like writing letters and that's my university lecturer if you went to Leeds you might actually know him but um, he's retired now Jonathan Sutton I went to Leeds a long time ago that's all I'm gonna say oh he retired now so he probably I think he's been there for a long time but he was in the um, Russian and Slavonic studies because I did I did politics and social policy so I didn't I didn't do much Russian at uh, university or any in fact um, but yeah, he he was um, teaching like Soviet religion in the course that I was studying, and he writes letters. So when I went back to Ukraine, he wrote letters to me, um, which was really really nice. I didn't respond nearly enough. <laughs> like I did respond on Facebook, uh, but not like writing physical letters because it felt a bit like too much effort, unfortunately. <laughs> That's very honest, Maria. That is uh, the honesty that I like to hear. It does feel like quite a lot of effort to respond to a letter. I got a letter this morning, and I thought I'm going to have to respond to this letter uh, from my um, my. Uh, she gets mentioned a lot actually on this podcast because she sends a letter to somebody in my family once a week. Uh, my husband's auntie Liz, uh, and she wrote me a letter this morning. I thought I'm going to have to write a proper letter back to her, but it is like it is an effort to write a letter, isn't it? it- yeah, well, and I'm, I'm such a person that, like, I need, I don't do anything not wholeheartedly. Like, if I'm doing something, I'm like, you know, I'm either all in or not do it at all. So, like, if I can't do something perfectly, I'm not, you know, I delay it until I have perfect circumstances. And sometimes that means that, you know, I don't do something for, like, a long, long time. But speaking of handwriting, I do journal, so I think... You write a journal, like an actual handwritten journal. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love doing that. I've been doing that for, I think, about three years now. Um, learned about it in one online course that I did, uh, that it's sort of, you know, it's a very life-changing habit because you basically become like a historian of your life and then you can always look back and then you, I sort of like summarize my uh, months and then my year because I have all these notes and then I see what I've done, what I've achieved every year. So I think it's very powerful, that sort of pen and uh, paper combination. Yeah, I mean, I have tried to do that. When I was first elected, I, like you say, like you should write, a, like, you know, lots of people say to you, keep, di- keep a diary because, you know, 
you're not just a historian when you're like a politician or a journalist you're not just a historian of your own life you're a historian of the the big issues of the day um and yet i what i found was that i just kept writing like sort of the petty annoyances that I had with some of my colleagues that I don't think it was making particularly historic writing but I really wish if I could have my time again I really wish that I do you never get like bored of like just writing down what do you do it every day I used to since February 24th it definitely has been a lot more difficult I had like a one month break I think or something like that when I barely did any writing and now sometimes I don't do it for like two three days when I'm especially busy my mind is all over the place uh, but I do it's very important for me to still try and do it regularly so ideally I do it like every day I used to do it twice a day uh, when I wake up and then before I go to bed what do you write about when you wake up like how are you feeling um sort of well Yeah, like I, I set the tasks for the next day, the night before. So I basically summarize, you know, before bed, I summarize how the day has gone and whether I've sort of hit the, the goals that I set. And then I set the goals for the next day. And then when I wake up, I used to like sort of, I talk to myself, like I say like, good morning, like I put the date and then the time and I say good morning and you know, it's going to be a great day. Today I'm planning to do this and this and this, like I do bullet points and then I always sign it off with like this kind of little mantra that I built over the years. Um, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. You should turn that into a book and like get people to do that. That sounds amazing. I, my mate used to write post-it notes for herself, like with to-do lists on that she'd do before bed. And the first one was wake up. And it's like, I mean, it's very disappointing if that bit didn't happen, wouldn't it really? Like, just wake up. It's like, it's, it's not really, you don't really have that much power over it. But um, yeah, wake up was the first thing on a to-do list. So... I mean, I suppose you're winning every day if you manage to tick off wake up. Sure, yeah. No, there are those days when you just kind of sometimes it's like have a shower because I didn't shower the day before. It's like important to remember. But I think it's supposed to be like only two, three um, points um, that are sort of the most important. So I asked you to think about three different people you wanted to send letters to. And the first one was the person who means the world to you. Well, I would pick my grandmother, my only surviving grandparent. Um, she's 92 years old and, well, you say wow, but for, by Ukrainian standards, this is like 190 years old because uh, unfortunately the life expectancy in Ukraine is uh, considerably lower in, uh, in Ukraine than it is in the UK. Yeah, she, we share a name, so she's also called Maria Romanenko and like... I love her a lot, especially now. Uh, I think in the last two years, we had we grown a lot closer. But I think before that, it's interesting. We've never really been that close. I was closer to my mum's um, parents, and this is my dad's mum. And then, like two years ago, um, in January 2020, she was not feeling well one day, and my um, dad sort of ran me to tell me that. And I decided like to go and visit her myself. And I think that was probably the first time I ever did it on my own, like got, get on a bus and sort of go and see her. And she lives like two hours, so just under two hours away by bus uh, from where I lived. Uh, um, so I used to like go with my dad, you know, but I'd never actually do it on my own. So I went to see her and um, we had like a really lovely time. You know, it was 
probably the first time for a long time when it was just her and me and we had a chat and then since that I kind of tried to make it regular and a regular thing and I would go you know every a couple of times a month or so uh, and it was really nice but um, when we got closer we had a chat and she told me some things that I never heard from anyone before um, and it was so fascinating to learn her story so obviously I'm from Ukraine and Ukraine was under the Soviet rule um, for few decades and she was a nurse um, when she was of working age and she she told me how she met my grandfather my dad's dad whom unfortunately I didn't meet because he died before I was born and uh, basically it's like this most fascinating story because um, the abortions abortions were illegal during that time uh, for about 20 years Um, and despite that, she carried out abortions on women uh, that, yeah, um, it's like in, in a small town in the Kiev region. And she, she did multiple, you know, she did on multiple women. Uh, and it's so sort of like, a, you know, kind of like secretly. And um, she risked herself for the sake of the women locally to her who needed help. Yeah. That is no, it yeah, I I learned that and I just kind of like, you know, discovered her anew, like she just be- transpired as a new person to me because I never sat down with her and uh, talked about these things and then they t- she told me that. And there's also a story of how she met my granddad through this. So my granddad um, was a, po- a police officer. Um, <laughs> I hope the story doesn't go the way it seems like it's going to go. Yeah, I think, well, it will sort of, but then it's a love story, so um, you can expect that it's not going to be that bad. Uh, yeah, uh, one of the, I think in one of the abortions, there was a, a little bit of a complication, only because uh, it was quite a late stage um, in pregnancy. She, the woman ended up and, you know, went to the hospital uh, because of it. And because she was in the hospital days, obviously, it, they couldn't keep it secret anymore. And uh, my granddad learned about this and he came to the hospital to see what's going on. Why was there an abortion? And so he went to my grandmother, which they never met before, to see what's going on. And then instead of prosecuting her, they fell in love and... Um, that's how they, they were together. Write your book right there. I mean, that's the book. Write that book. I would watch that. I would watch the film of that. Yeah, but there's like multiple. There's another thing about her life that I think also suggests, I'm not sure she would call herself a feminist. Um, I never asked her because uh, I think for her generation, it's quite a, you know, like almost like a swear word. I think that's what I would imagine it's like. Um, but she's definitely a feminist. Um, yeah, I'd say a woman who carried out secret abortions on people and faced the law uh, and then convinced the police officer to fall in love with her. That's feminism in action. And yeah, and it was like her second husband, basically, because uh, she was married before that. And again, like I never knew this story. She she told me this um, two years ago. But um, yeah, she she had the previous husband whom she left herself. And back then, you know, many decades ago in Soviet Ukraine, it was 
unseen and very frowned upon for a woman to leave uh, a man. But he cheated on her, um, I think, a couple of months into the marriage. And uh, she she left him. She ran away. She went to away from the village. And then her family brought her back. And they were just like, why can't you be normal? Like, you know, and there was like, because there's only like, there's also like four siblings. She had four siblings. And, you know, it's just kind of like you, the one, you know, the weird one in the family, what's wrong with you and that sort of thing. But she did what was right for her. You know, she she left the cheating husband and then got married to my granddad. And then my dad was born as a result of that. And then, you know, so I think, yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know whether it's like a sort of romantic idea of like, you know, living under Soviet rule. And it's got a great backdrop, this story. Yeah, I mean, she's she's like incredibly strong and she's just like the most stoic person you, you'll, you'll ever meet uh, because like she lived through, you know, Holodomor, the man-made uh, Stalin, the man-made famine by, uh, by Stalin. And then she lived through wars and uh, communism and she's still here and she's just... She's, it's, it's hard to describe her, you know, in a few sentences. She just, she's just incredible. Like she, she, she's very, very strong, even when she's bedridden, she'll still, you know, if, if she needs somebody to do something, she'll command, like my dad, she'll boss him around and so he does it properly. Uh, even if she can't do something herself, she'll make sure other, other people do things properly the way she thinks they should be done, but she's great. And was there any suggestion that she would leave Ukraine or... There's just it's just she's not well enough to or she wouldn't want to uh she's not well enough uh she's yeah she can't even like speak uh she's got some um she's starting to have some problems with her head and um she can't you know i can't even talk to her these days i haven't talked to her in a few weeks um because um she she can't hear the phone i mean there's always like a carer around her but we couldn't really organize that i speak to her and she's been yeah getting worse and worse and um unfortunately probably you know at some point won't be with us anymore but yeah from what i hear from my dad is that she's uh, starting to ask like you know strange questions like what is your name asking my dad what what his name is so that's yeah even even like you know a year ago even when she was much much better um she's a strong and independent woman and she lived on her own for a long long time because as i said my grand granddad passed away before i was even born so that meant she was living on her own all this time and she's used to doing everything herself and you know her house is kind of like her fortress in this uh, small town uh, where, where she lives and she's she's very she's really loved by the the town where she lives and everybody like you know brings her would bring her food or help her out in the way that she in the way that they can but she would never like leave her home because she she can't even you know when some time for for a week or so when she would had some operation and some health problems we would get her to live with my dad she would like really long to return to uh, home because she's used to being independent and um doing everything herself uh, which she can't really do now but yeah she would never leave uh, well it's a good job that you went when you know those few years ago and spoke to her and got these stories and like, you must feel incredibly proud to have a woman like that in your DNA. Yes, yeah. And the fact that, you know, that we share a name and also, like, a lot of people told me uh, that I either look like her or act like her and uh, I just sort of feel this strong connections. Maybe, you know, we 
don't talk often now we don't talk uh, much at all but I always felt that you know that I kind of need her and she needs me and we have some sort of bond going on oh she sounds epic what a great story I mean that's like a story for the ages that is it's got a bit of everything it's got love it's got feminism whether she would agree with that or not I love the idea of um, people not recognising their own feminism. So my, my granny was uh, a conservative voting, very, you know, you know, on the face of it, quite right wing. But in every single way she lived her life, she was a socialist. I was like, you know, you, you don't live like this. You live in a community and you, you do everything you possibly can to make it so everybody's got enough. Uh, and yet you, you're like, you know, your politics is something you identify with something that I don't identify as being anything like your character uh, in real life but that is I suppose that's just historic tags that people give themselves so how would you sign off a letter to the amazing Maria Romanenko I would say thank you for being my role model uh, a strong and independent woman I love you Maria oh you must feel very like far away from her it must feel like a massive massive pull but yeah it must be very hard it is yeah and not knowing when I'll see her if I'll see her at all I had this weird idea that she would be you know that if I when I get married that she'd be there but now if I, when I don't even know when, if, when I'll have a wedding like it's just it's just uh, really hard to to sort of imagine when when I'll see her and whether I'll get to see her at all. Yeah, it's incredibly hard. So the next uh, letter I asked you to think about writing uh, when you find the perfect moment to write these letters uh, is to um, somebody who's no longer with us. So who would that be to? Well, the the next one I think is uh, a bit funny. So it's not actually a person. Uh, I decided I would write a letter to an object. <laughs> so I, I miss my home a lot. And uh, near the last flat that I rented, there is uh, this supermarket um, called Silpo. And uh, that opened up, uh, the specific shop opened up just as I moved in into that flat. And so Silpo is like a it's a you know a chain and uh, they have this spe special thing about them that every shop that they open up has like a theme and they had some you know like space sort of theme or you know some cartoon uh, theme or a cat one there's a cat silpo which is a great thing unfortunately it's like the internet has leaked onto this supermarket cat supermarket yeah and like everything you know there's like statues of cats everywhere and everything it's like yeah it's amazing i wish the cat one was a bit closer to me but it's like 30 35 minute walk but the one that uh, opened up near me was um themed around the area where i lived and that's called padil um and it's like a downtown um very trendy area um it's also quite a historically jewish area um which means that you know we have not only we have like a synagogue but we have two hummus bars um in vicinity of uh, five min minutes of walking and you know you probably never even thought that you need one hummus bar but uh, even though a hummus bar was the thing I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it why are there not more hummus bars around here 
And that one, the supermarket is um, themed around the Padil, the area. And uh, because in Padil we have a statue of Samson and the lion, it's like a, a fountain as well. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, the, the Samson and the lion, uh, biblical narrative sort of goes that uh, the lion attacked Samson and uh, Samson therefore killed the lion. But the one that they put in Sopo in the middle of fruit and veg uh, um, section kind of looks like they're slow dancing instead of uh, <laughs> instead of Samson killing the lion. Uh, and I wish I could, like, show you a photo. I can totally imagine that, like... I can imagine how that would that would be. Um, and you know, since my when when my partner first saw it, he just found it hilarious, and he kept making j- jokes about this statue. It was like the most um, hilarious thing to him. And um, I loved that supermarket one quite a lot. But I think um, one story that sort of I associate with it now is uh, when we were in Kiev on February twenty third. We actually flew back to Kiev. We were already in Poland um, because um, my partner would refuse to fly to Ukraine because of the multiple, multiple FCDO warnings. And then we decided to meet in Poland. And after spending eight and a half days in Poland, um, I decided that I wanted to go back home unknowingly, obviously, what would happen the next day. But I was just like, you know, this is too expensive to keep staying in Poland. um, And Ukraine is my home. And we flew back. And on the day we flew back, we landed and there was a state of emergency announced. um, And uh, we had... um, some media interest in our story and uh, we had a, we did an interview with ITV Granada uh, that day on February 23rd because they were like you know state of emergency started let's let's talk to Maria and Jez and Jez was telling uh, Tasha from ITV Granada how about the statue and we're kind of, kind of like joking and laughing um, because um, you know there was like this serious sort of context that everybody was saying oh the war is about to start but we just flew back we so Kiev being, you know, same as always, uh, people are still walking around the street and um, and life sort of seemed quite normal. So uh, he was joking about the supermarket and uh, life here. And then even when we went to the supermarket, he took a photo of something in the line and I still have that photo and he sent it to Tasha. And yeah, we just found it like really funny because it was like this representation of normal life to us and then obviously then we had to flee the next day and I think still you know the statue will represent home and represent normality even during some less than normal times when uh, everybody was talking about the looming war Uh, and it's a symbol you know when I go back to Ukraine this will be this is symbol that I'm home because it's not you know you associate home not with like big things yeah you associate it not with if you live in London you're not gonna say oh when I see the Big Ben that's when I'm no. home not if you yeah. live in London if you're a tourist that's the thing and let me tell you as somebody who works inside Big Ben that is really irritating when you try to rush to a meeting but um but yeah like I wouldn't yeah I wouldn't think of like Birmingham city centre I would I, I would genuinely think about popping to like my local supermarket with my kids or going to buy bread in the local shop or like the things that I just do all the time yeah and it's like you know for somebody it'd be like a local kebab or something you know it's it's the yeah. little things uh, and I mean I'm gonna set one up now uh, I definitely want a hummus bar <laughs> yeah so you know for me it's when I return 
home and when, when Ukraine will be free and you know when I see when I see the Samson in the line like it'll be a sign that I'm at home and I'm in my area and Ukraine is free the war is over and um, I'm back home what an amazing thing that um, a biblical figure slow dancing with a lion is the representation of freedom <laughs> uh, I, I bet the people when they built that in the supermarket didn't think that it <laughs> didn't think this is going to become like the totem of peace and freedom but it is often the but it, you know in all that sort of iconography of place in all the the most sort of famous images of war it becomes it usually is something mundane. It's the, the 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 sort of image of a kid on a street, or the image of a soldier kissing somebody. Uh, you know, like it, it that that iconography is just the humanity of a place that is totally lost. Like, and when you say that, like in Kiev, people are just walking around normally. Like, I think that that is. When you're an outsider looking on at the war from uh, the what you are fed from the news, like the sort of expectation that everybody is sad all the time. War is just sad. Like there are just people living their lives in Kiev now as we're talking. Yeah, and I was um, I was quite in denial, you know, despite all the all the warnings. So just like, oh, it's going to be fine, you know. Even on the twenty third, I was like, oh. No, it's 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 going to be fine. So it's funny. So when we went to that shop, obviously we like we went to buy some bread. I bought a bottle of wine, and then I went to another shop, bought like a light bulb because it gone off and in the in the toilet. And now it's like just so funny to think that I changed the light bulb on the twenty third of February, and then the same evening I already went uh, outside of Kiev to my dad's place. Um, because of the because he gave me a call and told me that something could happen that night. But it just yeah, it's just like the. I think, yeah, there's a whole story story of um, the things I did on the 23rd, which were so sort of like, okay, well, I've come back home. I need to buy some bread. I need to buy wine. I need to buy some other food. I need to change the light bulb. I need to do this. And then all, all of that sort of becomes, you know, um, not important. And Yeah. You don't know that things are important until hindsight I mean, even if you knew you were going to flee, like the story of the day before you give birth, for example, like what you did on that day and like it, it didn't, you didn't realise it was historic when you were doing it. Uh, somebody said to me once, this makes my heart break, is that one day you put your children down, you're like holding them and you put them down and you never pick them up again. And when you're putting them down, you don't know it's happening. You don't know that this is like the last time you will ever pick up one of your children. And it's just happened and you didn't you didn't know it was like this historic moment. Like they're big now, they're grown. But I suppose like, you know, all those little things, going to the supermarket, going about your normal life, they take on a poetic sense that they wouldn't have the day before or the day before that or any other day. It's... It's remarkable to live through history, I suppose. That's the thing. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I, I remember, like, all of those things I did on the 23rd, and then when we were... So I got a call from my dad, and he said, you know, I heard that something will happen in central Kiev. Um, it's better if you could come to my place, and he lives just outside of Kiev. And um, I parked because I 
didn't realize there would be a war still. Um, I packed things for like a long weekend uh, away. And, you know, instead of packing things that would actually be really useful when you flee in the country, like I put that loaf of bread that I bought and I put like the bottle of wine and I put my a couple of jumpers and then like my running stuff and uh, a bag of spices so that we can cook uh, at my dad's place. Um, and it's still like the story of my packing uh, that night um, is just like really, really hilarious. And I think it would be, yeah, I'll definitely um, include it in the book that I write but um, yeah it just it meant that when I eventually fled to Poland and then to England it meant that instead of having the useful things I basically I, I got rid of the bottle of wine uh, in I was going to say you didn't carry the bottle of wine just drink that on the way <laughs> I mean we did carry it through the border which was uh, being at the border was like not really uh, really a horrible experience on the first days because it was so packed and uh, so crazy there but I, I gave it as a present to uh, the people who um, hosted us for two nights in Warsaw but yeah there's some other things like a bag of spices that were actually brought from the UK and then my partner brought them from the UK to Ukraine and because I thought we would cook at my dad's like I ended up with me and then I ended up bringing them back to the UK so I have like a big uh, bag of Indian spices <laughs> and the journey that must have like you know I suppose if your partner is from England, you at least had like a landing zone that you knew, you know, where you were going. We knew where we were going, but um, I didn't have a legal right to travel to the UK because of um, the, the Home Office uh, not being very good and losing my tourist visa um, that I applied for um, early February. I could just say that I could literally do a 10 hour long pro podcast every single day for the rest of my life with stories about how the home office aren't very good. And still, I would have only got through about three weeks in my office. So uh, the home office is what, what a surprise, Maria, that the home office was shit. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, yeah, so um, I I was supposed to have a tourist visa by that point, but uh, they lost my visa because they must have sent it to the Kiev application center where I applied, but they shot it on the, when the war uh, started. So, yeah, so it was fraught because you didn't know whether you were going to be able to come in. Yeah, yeah, and I had lots of help, and I think I'll come to that in the next uh, letter, but I had lots of help from journalists in the UK and from my MP, Andrew Gwynn. His, uh, yeah, he was just so wonderfully ha uh, helpful, and he was, like, trying to find out what happened to my visa, and eventually we found out that... Um, they issued it to me, but they probably sent it to Kiev and their um, application centre was shut and there was no way to get it back. Um, and they were like, well, we can't reissue it, so you'll have to reapply for the visa. And we were like, but you shut, you closed the tourist uh, visas uh, for Ukraine. How am I supposed to reapply? I'm like, well, we don't know. Um, so we had to um, just go back and forth. And when we were in Poland, we went to Warsaw. Um, specifically to uh, go to the British Embassy in Warsaw and the British Embassy in Warsaw wouldn't talk to me because I don't have a British passport but they would talk to my partner and he started bothering them and like you know saying you know this the situation we're looking for Maria's visa and um, we need to to get into the UK and um, 
they were like, so it was it kind of funnily coincided with Boris Johnson's visit to Warsaw and he was doing a thing at the embassy and we didn't even know about this. So he, yeah, he came there with Liz Truss and we, uh, so, you know, my, like Jazz was trying to talk to the embassy and they're like, well, come back in 40 minutes. And he's like, why? Like, well, we've got Boris Johnson visiting and I was like, brilliant, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> so he started like, you know, pushing on them to give give us a response. And Andrew Gwynn was like phoning up and asking about my visa. And the journalists uh, were calling uh, the embassy pretending to write a story about my visa and what happened to it. And eventually they just gave me a visa waiver, which was um, just a, it's a very unique thing. Um, it's only given like in rare circumstances. But because at that point it was... Um, early March and there was no the the Homes for Ukraine scheme wasn't announced so the family family visa scheme was there but it didn't apply to us because you had to be um, married or living together for two years which because my partner did you consider getting married in Poland <laughs> uh, no I think we had so many other things on our mind at that point um but um, yeah, because my partner lives in Manchester, I live in Kiev, we didn't live together together for, for two uh, years. Um, so that's why it was important for me uh, to get something to be able, otherwise I wouldn't be able to enter the country. So they gave me the visa waiver and it was thank you, thanks to Andrew Gwynn and thanks to the journalists that this actually um, happened. And I think that's, you know, that, you know, it would be stressful. The journey was stressful anyway, but it was made even more stressful because we knew we were going to the UK because there was no other options for my partner uh, because he's from here. But it was just a question of how to get me into the country legally. Yeah. I um, I hope that when you do get married, you get married in front of the Samson Slow Dancing uh, statue or you have it recreated, remoulded. I feel like we're going to get somebody to recreate this mold of this model for you in ice you could have an ice sculpture of the Samson and uh, slow dancing with the lion so how would you sign off your letter to the slow dancing Samson and the lion I also think one of the greatest things anyone's ever picked <laughs> I would say keep dancing Samson and the lion I will be back <laughs> I mean it's what I love is that it's like a meaningful thing I can't pretend otherwise that this is like a thing a totem of your home being uh, free again um, and normal but I love that it's like an in-joke between you and your partner like the the thing the in-jokes that you have with your like because it's things are still funny um, I did a thing with um, uh, Amanda Iannucci, um who wrote The Death of Stalin uh, and I did a, an event with him about satire in politics and he said that the thing that Stalin could never take away from people. He could take everything away. The thing he could never... The, the secret thing that everybody could keep was their sense of humour. You can't, you can't squash a person's sense of humour. So the, the only weapon that you still have, and the, it's the weapon of a satirist, is laughter, is to poke fun and make laughter about things. So the fact that your totem is a hilarious slow-dancing lion and something is pretty beautiful, I think. I like that a lot. 
ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So the final letter I asked you to write was, who would you want to write a letter to who is a person who, or people who wouldn't know the effect that they'd had on your life? Well, I would write a letter to UK media, just in general, all the journalists. Um, have been incredibly supporting from, I can't even say day one, because it was even before before February 24th that they were supportive, supporting of us. And it's probably before, you know, since day minus 11 or something, when I had the interview with uh, Radio 5 Live, uh, Chris Warburton, who... Um, you know, whom I told about our plans uh, because Des wouldn't fly to Ukraine. Um, so I was like, well, he, yeah, it was like Valentine's Day as well. And um, Des was planning to come and see me initially in Kiev, but he was like, I'm not going to go because of the CDO advice. And I did this, this was like uh, in an interview to Chris Warburton uh, for BBC uh, Five Live, where um, I described this situation. And this was like, I think the first sort of big interview that I did about the war in February. Um, and then this continued when on February 24th, you know, I had so many media requests. Um, everybody was just calling me and messaging me. And I ended up the whole journey from Kiev to live from just outside of Kiev. Um, my dad very kindly drove uh, me and Des uh, to Lviv. Uh, it was very difficult to pursue him because he thought it was a stupid idea to do that when everybody else would be doing it. But Jez was like, well, we, we're going to the border. There's no other way. Um, so he, he drove us and this entire 
um, 10 hours it took us from Kiev to Lviv normally it like takes six hours but because of the traffic and everything everybody was getting out of Kiev um, I the, out of the 10 hours probably eight hours I spoke uh, I, I spent uh, speaking to journalists it was just non-stop and you know I wouldn't even know who was calling me um, I had a call after a call after a call from various various BBC uh, platforms like BBC Cambridge BBC Wales <laughs> you know it was just like not how many BBCs there are there's a BBC for every every bloody inch of the country isn't there there's a lot can't they talk to each other a bit better is what I sometimes think <laughs> yeah and uh, I mean it might, it might sound daunting to everybody listening that you know, spent like eight hours on the phone but I think at that time it was actually very very helpful to me because I just you know it took my mind away from what was going on and we would just um otherwise I'd probably just have a breakdown and just um but because I had to stay focused I kept talking talking and talking to different people and uh, probably repeating some of the same things but it just kept my mind on something and kept me busy and um that was great and then we were at the border and um again as as we were being crushed uh, on the on the border with like tens of thousands of people around us um i did an interview to uh, bbc and uh, northwest i think it was um whilst you know whilst in this uh, crowd of people and then after we crossed uh we were like on bbc breakfast uh, when we were in poland already uh, via video call and they were kept supporting and when uh, when you know we had the problems with the visa they uh, as i said before they were calling the embassy uh saying that they're writing a story and helped me to get the visa waiver therefore and then they were also covering the whole visa situation in the media as well when it finally was the permission was given for me to enter the country there was stories about me getting the visa and then I arrived into the country and uh, the help sort of you know the the coverage was still sort of there you know they were still trying to get the latest and how I'm feeling here there were people waiting at the airport we had about three camera crews um, meeting us at the airport um, but also which was funny because um, so when I arrived um, when we arrived to Manchester Airport, you know, the, it was the normal. Everybody was so surprised by this visa waiver thing. Nobody really knew where it was. And uh, and the border control, they were like, um, oh, so you have a visa waiver. Oh, okay, then. And they're like, well, we have to email the home office to give a permission. So nobody really knows that it's a visa waiver. It's not just that. It's like, okay, well, cool, you can go through. But they actually have to get permission and uh, approval from the home office to say, yes, this person is allowed to to uh, cross the border and that took them two and a half hours to get the response from the home office and all this time we had to wait can I just say that's the quickest response I've ever known the home office gives so you know you feel like two and a half hours is a long time when people ring me up and say I haven't heard from the home office it's been nine months and I'm like wait another nine and then you'll be at the same level as most people oh if we had to wait for nine months in the airport I think there'll be many 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 small many small stories in the media (laughs) about that but um yeah so and whilst we were waiting for those two and a half hours in the airport they sent like a counter-terrorism police to check i wasn't a terrorist um <laughs> how did they check that <laughs> well, they did, if you're a terrorist they say are you a terrorist you say not to the best of my knowledge uh well they're just asking like you know this very very normal questions but i guess at the same time they were watching me and uh sort of looking for uh, some clues or, or whatever 
and they were just like, oh, so, you know, what, what happened? Um, why are you here? And somebody actually asked me if, if I know how long I'm going to be in the UK for. And I was like, do you guys know when the war will be over? <laughs> like, you know, it's just a weird question. But then also, yeah, so the counterterrorism police was like trying to get our story. So they're like, so what, you know, you were crossing the border and what, what happened? And we were like, well, this is what happened. We were 40 hours. We were trying to cross the border. 23 hours we spent without toilet, without water, food, because it took us 23 hours to cross the actual border. And um, and they were like asking more and more questions. They were like, well, seriously, you know, if you that interested in our story, you can just Google my name and my partner's name, and you'll find loads of stories that that tell you all of that. Or you can just go outside and talk to the camera crews waiting for us. Um, and after that, they didn't really have any more questions. Um, so yeah, the journalists met us um, outside the airport, um, and then uh, after that, you know, there was still all that coverage of uh, my story. But also, there was a, another angle of all of this is that the journalism, the journalist community, was incredibly helpful towards me and very kind. So everybody was doing whatever they can. So like we had no, my partner is friends with Nicole Lumpert, who is a freelance journalist, and she also works for Mail Online, and. Um, she introduced me to lots of other journalists. She um, wrote like introductions in different Facebook groups, and there were journalists uh, contact me, contacted me to give me some work. And sometimes this work was like, "Can you do this like one hour of work?" And in reality, they would pay me much more than for one hour. So it kind of like seemed like they were just trying to pay me, uh, you know, for just doing something. They didn't really care what it would be, but in order to support me, because they knew there was a journalist from Ukraine who arrived into the country um, where uh, and fled the country where there is a war. Um, so it just, um, it was just all of that support was just, you know, Immense, and it gave a, gave me a platform, gave a, a platform to Ukrainian voice, but also uh, journalists helped me with clothes. Uh, so I, as I said, I only flat with like three jumpers. And when I was invited into studios, uh, I didn't really have anything to wear because the jumpers I had were like this, like really warm woolly jumpers, and that's not really good. Um, no, under the lights of a studio, that's you're going to sweat in that. <laughs> Yeah, so like Lucy Meekuk from ITV Granada, um, she, um, you know, and I, we, we were about to have a, a segment on ITV Granada uh, live. I was like, well, I don't really have anything to wear. And she was like, well, come look at my wardrobe. And she picked a blouse and she gave me the blouse. And she was like, oh, you can just keep it. And then she wanted to give me more clothes, but, um, you know, the other clothes were like a bit too anchor uh, sort of. Uh, <laughs> you didn't want to clothes. walk around Manchester looking like a news anchor. <laughs> yeah. So, so she gave me the, the blouse. She was very, very kind as well. And there were like local media, Northwest Tonight, um, and um, others who were just so helpful beyond the words. And uh, one of the things that I did since um, arriving here, um, I started in order to give back to the community uh, because Manchester and Greater Manchester have been so wonderful. Um, I decided to uh, start free walking tours of Manchester in Ukrainian for Ukrainians. So in that way, I'm sort of, you know, transferring the kindness that was given to me to Ukrainians who are not in the same fortunate position as I am because I have the knowledge skills, uh, the language knowledge, knowledge skills. I have the, the, the knowledge of the country. I went to university here before. I have Jazz, my partner. But a lot of these Ukrainians who arrive here don't. So I've been running 
Yeah, I've been running uh, free, Man- free walk- Manchester walking um, tours in Ukrainian together with the free uh, Manchester walking tours um, group. And when I, the first one, we did three already, we're doing another one in September. Uh, but the first one, I emailed a few journalists, all of the journalists in the area. And I was like, would you like to cover it? And everybody said yes. And they all turned up. And then, you know, since then, it's like everything, you know, if I ask journalists for something, they, they will try and accommodate and they will try to help. They try to cover every Ukrainian story that I um, suggest to them or something that I'm doing here. Like, it's just been so, so helpful. And um, this has uh, also inspired me to write the book about the escape uh, from Ukraine. And then we're also thinking of doing a documentary about return to Ukraine. So we kind of do like this two, you know, two parts of the, like, coming out at the same time. Uh, book about fleeing Ukraine and then a documentary about returning to Ukraine which will be out when I actually return to Ukraine when Ukraine will be free <laughs> which will be out when the counter-terrorist police tell you when the war is going to be over <laughs> yeah probably have to call them and ask them so that I know the release date <laughs> <laughs> you know the date yet yeah you should just knock, knock on their door um, you have in this podcast I mean one day maybe somebody's going to come on and defend the Home Office, but I, I doubt that. Um, but um, you have in this podcast, you have been very, very uh, kind and generous towards two professions that most people hate and think are selfish and vicious and mercenary and only in it for themselves, and that is politicians and the British media, specifically the British media. You have uh, managed to humanise them because the reality is in both those situations, they are just people and they are people who have feelings Feelings. I mean, even, you even mentioned the male. I mean, this is going to be a shock to people. Um, maybe you'd like to defend estate agents. People hate them as well. Uh, but, like, they're not, you know, the British media is not something that you often hear defended and thanked in the way that you have done. Do you feel, I mean, obviously, the individuals that you dealt with were kind and caring because they are kind and caring individuals. That's, that is written. Like, I mean, I, I think that more people should know that most journalists are nice people. Um, so that, 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 let's put that to one side. But there is, you know, you were, there was a mutually beneficial situation uh, in that you were willing to talk for eight hours as history was literally occurring, you were you showed a willingness and desire to tell that story to them. That would have been beneficial towards to them as well. Uh, like you know, they they needed somebody who, like your walking tour of Manchester, it's exactly the same in reverse. They needed a walking tour of an exit from Ukraine, and you provided that. So, like you know, it was mutually beneficial to both parties. Yeah, um, probably, yeah. But it was, as I said, you know, I didn't really mind um, talking for eight hours because that just kept my mind away. But, yeah, there was a, there was some points when I was getting a bit overwhelmed with all the interviews, but that's when my partner came really into in good use. He, he's much, he's, he thinks differently to me, so I'm very, you know, I get overwhelmed easily. I need, like, per- perfect circumstances to do something. I'm sometimes a bit too tired all the one to write a response but he can get very focused very easily 
And he was um, sometimes responding to media, like, you know, confirming requests and then just making the diary for me, sort of put it in the diary. So we kind of managed to um, navigate this, all the, all the requests and everything, thanks to Jez as well. I think it's important, though, that people, people who are usually quite cynical about the media, to understand that we wouldn't know anything about what was happening in Ukraine if it weren't for the media. Like, it, they play an incredibly important function <laughs> in a free society, is a free media. Um, and I think it is, like, you know, it shouldn't be underestimated. But, you know, I've had m- my own running with journalists in my life. But by and large, they are decent people who just want to tell the truth about a situation um, and they're nice, kind people. So, I'm, you know, it's nice to hear somebody say it. Yeah, and it does, like, as you said, you know, it does show the human side and nobody really thinks about the journalists as human beings and everybody, you know, like it's a collective sort of thing, like just journalists, but all of them have personality and all of them have been some wonderful um, trying to help in any way that they can. So... That's why I think it's so important to thank them through this, I hope. Yeah, some of my um, constituents, uh, I don't, I, I mean, I have some Ukrainian people who've obviously been resettled in my area. And like Andrew Gwynn, we were constantly on the phone trying to sort out the bloody visas, um, which is always a pain. Um, because of the Home Office, I think I've mentioned that they're a bit useless. But, um, the journalists who gathered around the women, specifically women journalists of Afghanistan. So I have huge numbers, uh, huge Afghan population in my constituency, and historic to the recent um, crisis in Afghanistan. And so lots of people were resettling, you know, worrying about their families. But the, the journalists who kept those people's stories alive, for me as a politician... It's really, really important that the journalists are telling the story because that helps me broker things for my constituents. It really, it helps me save people, actually. Journalism, you couldn't do good politics or good casework or good support in global crises without the media. They are vitally, vitally important. Um, And yeah, it's nice to hear them. It's nice to hear them celebrated. Yeah, and there's a that I can't remember the, the exact quote, but there's a, a nice photo that I like uh, of this. I think it's like a boy or a person holding a poster saying that first they came for um, somebody, and then they came for this, and then they came for journalists, and after that nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> yeah. So it's like you know, after 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 people come for journalists, when there's no journalists, nobody will know what's going on. Yeah, journalists do matter. Um, so some of them have some crackers opinions, but, you know, don't we all? Um, so how would you sign off your letter to the British journalists? The British media never once before celebrated in quite such fond terms. Um, well, I would just say thank you for making me feel welcome and thank you for accommodating my, um, my travel to the UK. Oh, well, you're very, very, very welcome here in the UK. Do you feel welcome? Yeah. um, It's, yeah, the first few weeks, I was one of the first people to arrive um, as a result of the the all-out war. And um, 
because of that, like everybody back then, you know, because I was one of the first people, everybody was like going, bending over backwards to, to help me. And that uh, manifested in various things from, um, from, as I said, helping with clothes and you know, people sort of giving us, you know, go to a bar and they're just like, oh, you don't have to pay. There was a, I have a really nice story actually from an Indian restaurant in um, central Manchester, really, really nice one some reason i just forgot the name <laughs> we went to the restaurant which is going to be really bad if i'm wanting to thank them but we went to uh, the restaurant and i was on the first or second day uh, after we arrived and uh, we got the bill and the waiter was just like you know what well, you know we, we recognize you we saw you on tv and you don't you don't have to pay the bill and we were after you know after what you went through um and i was just um just broke down in tears I wasn't expecting this kindness and it was just yeah it, it was just the most surreal thing to have that and yeah it was like things like this and then a local hairdresser gave me a free haircut and people were giving like cakes and um, doing whatever really they could there were people inviting me to speak at an event uh, or what have you you know everybody was like oh we had a I have a a neighbor that I never met before called Liam uh, he knocked on the door this first or second day or the first few days since I arrived here and uh, he asked me to come downstairs um, so I was like and I opened the door and I sort of come outside and I see him and his uh, five-year-old son called Gabby and uh, he's holding like this um, drawing that he made the, the, the little boy and it said like welcome home and Ukrainian flags and I saw that again I was just like reduced to tears I wasn't expecting that from somebody I never even met and another yeah another neighbor like gave flowers and yeah it was just you know there's tears that when something sad happens but there's also tears that you you, you have when you and some when somebody's been incredibly kind to you and so I had to experience both of those but the level of kindness and from the community I wish that that everybody felt that way uh, and I think probably most Ukrainians do but the you know I, I think that it's not always extended to other people in our country who are fleeing from other places uh, and that is a uh, not because of the people necessarily <laughs> the people are pretty good uh, in my experience but it's you know I don't think necessarily we're always completely as kind as we could be uh, when people flee from very difficult situations so it is nice to hear when it does happen yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I experienced nothing but, you know, very, very... Well, I no, when I say nothing, obviously there's a lot of weird people on Twitter that abuse <laughs> and... A lot of weird people on Twitter. I mean, that, that, that's a given. Just... Yeah, yeah. send abuse and weird things. I was a couple of times. No one's ever going to come on here and say, I'd like to say thank you to internet trolls. <laughs> but yeah, I was like <laughs> accused of the weirdest stuff. Once I was accused of smiling in a photo because I don't look like a refugee anymore. And I'm like, 
Right, okay. So I'm not allowed to smile anymore. Um, well, it's like the perfect victim. You have to remain, like, you know, in, in domestic violence and sexual violence, you have to remain the perfect victim. You have to look the way that people expect you to look. And if you laugh at all, then you couldn't possibly be a victim of domestic abuse. Because, of course, they don't ever laugh victims of domestic abuse. And that will be held against you in a court of law. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty, pretty shitty. But, yeah, some people are twats. They're, I think that we can draw a line and say some people are just not very nice whereas the vast majority of people are very kind and sweet and nice and humane uh, and that's good to hear well maria it has been a total pleasure to talk to you um and i i just hope that you get to go and dance with the lion and samson uh, uh very soon as soon as is possible I hope that you get to go and dance and your book and documentary will be epic, I should imagine. And then when you've written that one, you're going to write the mini-series to be filmed for Netflix about your grandma. I mean, you've got to write it. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.